Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, pastor at Hope, and we are so glad that you are listening in. We would love to connect with you in person at our Sunday gathering. In the meantime, we hope this message points you to Jesus, the reason we gather. Kids don't put up with bad books like adults do. So any children's book, she went on, that makes it to these shelves is a guaranteed good book. My takeaway from that moment was that kids are, in a way, better readers than adults. Kids don't tolerate a bad story. They respect their imagination. And so we need, I believe, children to teach us how to read. Especially this morning as we engage the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation is the last book in our Bible, but we're talking about it this morning because, as you know, we're talking about the books of John. And so two weeks ago, we looked at his gospel, and last week we looked at his letters, which means this morning we look at Revelation. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) That's how we roll. I would say, uh, buckle your seatbelts, I would say, screw on your mind, uh, your head, and let's go. But that would actually be misrepresenting the book of Revelation. Revelation, I want you to hear this, is not as confusing, is not as intimidating as you have been told. We adults have made it really confusing, but one scholar, I appreciate this, compares Revelation to a children's book. And says that a child is often a better interpreter of Revelation than an adult with a PhD. Why? Because Revelation has one very simple point to make. But Revelation makes and then remakes and then remakes and then remakes this simple point over and over again. And uses unforgettable imagery as you just heard read already. And that, friends, requires imagination. Our problem as adult Bible readers is that we freak out when God asks us to use our imaginations. Uh, But not children. They know what to do. So let's take a deep breath. Let's put aside whatever assumptions you have this morning about this amazing ancient book that God wants in our Bibles. And let's become like children. And let's take a look. But first, let's pray. Lord, with the words of my mouth, with the meditation of all of our hearts, our ponderings, even, yes, our imagination, would it be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and redeemer? Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would we see Jesus this morning? And would our hearts be released? Would our hearts be comforted? Would our chest grow lighter, would our joy grow stronger as we see Jesus. That's our prayer. We pray in his name. Amen. About a year ago, I was telling my wife about how God really met me in the scriptures, and in particular, uh, the moment in Genesis when Jacob, who is running scared, realizes in a dream that God is in this place. You remember that? And so he pours oil on the stone that was his pillow that night, and he calls the place Bethel, house of God. 
God is in this place. And the Lord really spoke to me in that story. And I told her all the ways that the Lord spoke to me. I talked on and on and on. I explained the scene with words. I explained its meaning with words. And Josie listened to my words. But I came home later that day to a small picture on the table. It was a watercolored illustration of a stone with a pool of running oil on the side. Now... Real talk, sadly, it took me way too long to understand what that was. I said, this is cool. Is this an ice cube? Did your kid do this at at school? Awesome. Fail. (laughs) If you're wondering, uh, that's a fail. What happened in that moment? Well, I processed the story of Jacob without my imagination. It was all words and concepts at that moment. But my wife knows that humans are not just information machines, but image bearers with imaginations. And I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of that. And I actually need to exercise the atrophied imagination that God gave me, especially when it comes to God's promises. And I'm sure you can relate. I met with a counselor. I meet with a counselor from time to time. And at the end of one of our sessions, she gave me homework. But guess what? That homework was not a book to read. That homework was a song to listen to. Why? Because she knew for me, especially in my makeup, there are limits to concepts in my brain. And what I need is I need to sing. Because singing invites my body. Singing invites my imagination into the truths that I need to embrace. See, we need more than words. Yes, words are vital. I mean, God gave us words. He, got, he gave us a library of books. But this very word of God tells us we must experience God's promises with the eyes of our heart. Especially when we're having trouble hearing His words. Sometimes, I don't know if you can relate, we can be so overwhelmed with what's going on in our life, what's going on around us, maybe what's going on inside of us, what's gone on in our past, what we fear might go on in our future. We're so overwhelmed by that, that we are sitting in front of a dear friend who is trying to comfort you, and their words are literally like Charlie Brown's parents and adults. And they're telling you things, that well-meaning things, and well-meaning truths, but it's just a flow of meaningless words. Words, words, words. Sometimes we have trouble with words. And this can even be true of God's own word. I think, uh, I've noticed actually that coaches, in particular football coaches, seem to notice there's so much distraction on the field. I've never played football. But as I watch, I'm noticing that like coaches are throwing up pictures on the sideline so that the quarterback can actually see what the play is with pictures. Unforgettable pictures. Random pictures. Well, it's not a perfect analogy, but I think that with Revelation, God seems to do the same. God wants His beloved to stay in the game. God wants His beloved in the midst of their trauma, in the midst of their distraction, to stay near. And so God gives John, in particular, visions. He holds up signs on the sideline. And he tells John to write them down. Why? So that we would stay in the game. As we heard read, I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering. Okay, so there is suffering happening right now. And in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance. So now they're being called upon to have patient 
endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was called and I was exiled rather to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day and I was worshiping the spirit and suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast and it said right in the book everything you see. And send it to the seven churches. This is God's idea. God knows we need more than ideas to feed the mind if we're going to patiently endure. These are Christians experiencing trauma. God doesn't give them long paragraphs to clog the overwhelmed brain. He tenderly gives them pictures as food and nourishment for the heart. And that's what Revelation is for us. So two main questions this morning. What is Revelation in our Bible? Number two, why is Revelation in our Bible? First, what on earth is Revelation? Well, John tells us gratefully, it's three things, at least three things, like a braided cord, Revelation is three things at the same time. In the very first chapter you see in verse 1, this is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, and he sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John. And then in verse 3, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. And then in verse 4, this letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of of Asia. So revelation, prophecy, and letter. Each were very, very well-known ways of communicating back then. This was not weird stuff. This was very, very well-known ways of communicating. We must, we must, as a 21st century church, recover these genres or these ways of communicating uh, in order for this book and to really receive this book as a blessing. Verse 3. So let's look at each. I want to look at each in reverse order. First, Revelation is a letter. It's a letter to churches. Now, this is a huge oversimplification, but over time and over church history, there are broadly two types of readers of Revelation, or two approaches. Some say Revelation is only a letter to the ancient church and has really nothing to do with us today. And there's other readers of Revelation who say Revelation is only a letter sort of as a time capsule to the sort of modern church today, or maybe even in the future. It has absolutely zero relevance, therefore, to the original believers in John's day. Now, if, it, if you've been with us for any time, you're not going to be surprised that I think the best approach is to say yes. The best approach is to say, yes, yes, if this is a letter, written, it's a letter, it's a letter from John written to seven historic churches in what is today Turkey. Here's the map. And John wrote this on parchment, on a scroll, and sent it from the island of Patmos. But as we saw, this is a letter to seven churches. And friends, we know that apocalyptic literature, this is what we're looking at, is very symbolic. And so seven is symbolic for complete. So Revelation is a letter to seven historic churches, but Revelation is also a letter to every church, everywhere, anywhere, including, friends, Hope Church this morning. 
It's a letter. Revelation is also a prophecy. Now, the word prophecy, I think, has skidded off the road of original meaning, okay? So let's just recover what it meant in the Bible. In the Bible, prophecy was less about foretelling and more about what's been said as forthtelling. So it was less crystal ball stuff. This is going to happen way in the future. And prophecy at that time was more like a sermon. It was taking God's word and applying it to God's people at that moment in time. Prophets had a calling to powerfully apply God's word to the people in front of them. Did that include from time to time things about the future? Yes, of course. But we have to understand and we therefore have to treat Revelation as a sermon. It's a sermon. And it's meant to inspire endurance and costly obedience in ancient Jesus followers. It was meaningful to them. It was powerful to them like a good sermon is today. That's what Revelation is. It's not this weird thing. It was a very meaningful sermon. When I preach, I hope it lands. And that's what John does here. He wants us to land. And so this is not some coded puzzle that's sort of sit in the time capsule that only like American evangelicals in the 21st century have sort of the privilege of understanding and deciding what it means. It's not at all what it is. It's a sermon to first century believers who would have been blessed in hearing it. And like all of God's word, it's a sermon to us. And there's blessing for us as well. And then finally, I want to say and talk a bit about how Revelation is a, well, Revelation. Revelation is a translation of the Greek word apocalypsis, which may sound familiar. Apocalypse. This was a very, very well-known way of writing in John's world. Apocalypse. Apocalyptic. Okay, so if ancient Rome had a Barnes and Noble, there would be an entire section of apocalyptic. Because that's just how common it was. And like all common types of reading and writing, everybody knew how to, how to, how to read it and how to receive it. These books were not about life after zombies. Okay, so let's just get that idea of apocalypse out of our mind. <laughs> okay? What then? What is an apocalypse? Well, an apocalypse is a revelation or a revealing. That's what the word means. It's a look behind the surface of reality. What is really going on? So Wizard of Oz, that movie, that movie is an apocalypse. Why? Because in the end, we're all given a glimpse of what is behind the, sur- the, the, the curtain. And so that moment when you actually see behind the curtain, that is the apocalyptic moment. That's when you actually see what is going on, like real reality. So we have the surface reality, and then we have real reality. And the apocalypse is that moment when the curtain is drawn. And that is what revelation means. If you grew up watching the Muppets, an apocalypse is getting to see what's below the camera. Sorry. <laughs> can't unsee that, can you? <laughs> but that's the point. You can't unsee it. An apocalypse is getting a look below the camera. Up here is what we see, but looks can be deceiving. There is more beneath the frame. There is more behind the frame. But to see it, we need apocalypse. We need somebody or something to reveal. And this is revelation. This is revelation. And you can understand why God's people needed it badly, can't you? Just think about it. Their daily life as a Jesus follower was literally killing them. 
Life in the Roman Empire was rough, really rough stuff for Jesus' followers. It was a confusing place. It was a dangerous place. Spiritual, physical trauma was the order of the day. They needed a look beneath the surface. They needed something real, something more reliable. So basically, God shows John seven, I would say seven unforgettable images to impress on them what is really going on. And I use that word on purpose, to impress on them what is really going on. These are the seven images, and you could dice this up any, any way, lots of different ways. But I think this is helpful for us to think of it like this. These are images, these are pictures that we cannot unsee, that will help them persevere, patiently endure. Now I want to familiarize ourselves just so briefly with each of these. And it will also be for us a summary of the book. And so first, the Lord himself. The first and most important behind-the-scene glimpse is someone like the Son of Man. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to follow along. Because we see in chapter 1, verse 17, the first and the last, the one who died but is alive forevermore. God wants us to see Jesus behind the scenes. And if you do take a look at the image that we are given, the picture that we are given, we notice a couple of things. When I turned to see who was speaking, verse 12, I saw the lampstands, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was one wearing a long robe with a golden sash on his chest. His head and his hair were like white wool, and he goes on, so that by the time it's done, as we heard read, John fell at his feet, verse 17, as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and he said, do not be afraid. I am the first in the life. So I was dead, but now I'm alive forevermore. So two things we notice about this vision of Jesus right away. Number one, Jesus is fearsome. So John actually falls down as a dead. But number two, Jesus is gentle and he is kind. He laid his right hand on me and he said, do not be afraid. The Roman Empire had their Lord and Savior. This guy. This guy was emperor in those days. He actually called himself Lord and Savior. There you go. And others did as well. And others looked to him as if he were Lord and Savior. God is saying through John, like, don't worship this guy. Seriously? Don't worship this guy. Don't put your eggs, don't put your eggs, the eggs of your soul in his basket. Why would you do that? Don't sell your birthright for a pot of stew. Don't search for rest in the so-called Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Don't do that. Find your peace in me. No, Jesus is the true Lord and Savior. He is the Lord. He's fearsome. But He is also Savior. Don't be afraid. His hand is on you. He's on your side. First in the and everything in the living who died to look, I'm alive forever and ever, who holds the keys of death and the grave. Nothing can compare. So whatever's going on, I think, in our life, even today, we need that to understand that behind the scenes is this Lord and Savior. Which takes us to our second look behind the scenes, which is the Lord's people. The second look behind the scenes is basically a bird's eye look at the Lord's people. Jesus speaks strongly but tenderly to seven unique churches. But also, as we said, 
every church after them, including Hope Church. The people of God are like lampstands in the temple, but Jesus walks among them, as he says. And he is near and he keeps our light lit. And so we have in chapters 2 through 3 of your Bibles, the letters to the church, which of course are letters to us as well. And then in chapters 4 and 5, we get an image of the Lord's throne or the Lord's throne room. Chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation are absolutely life changing. Uh, We get a glimpse of the place where God dwells, of of heaven. And what we see is a never ending thrice holy worship. Verse 8 of chapter 4. Around where? The throne of God. And in God's right hand is a scroll. We can look at verse, I'm sorry, chapter 5. To see the Lord's victor. Because in God's right hand is a scroll with seven seals. Okay? So I think of this scroll as J.K. Rowling's manuscript of Harry Potter book 7. And here's why. Because during the excitement of book 1. Rowling knew that her epic. And she knew how her epic was going to end. Before she even started writing. It was all on a napkin supposedly. But she couldn't release book seven until her protagonist, Harry, grew into the role, right? Well, this seven-sealed scroll has God's story of rescue written on it. But it remains sealed up with seven seals, and it needs to be opened. But nobody is worthy to open it. So John starts crying. It's how you and I feel when there is absolutely no hope. Like when you actually hit the bottom, and there's despair creeping in. You weep. Like, so this is not hyperbole. John started weeping. No, this is like a bad thing because it's feeling like there's no hope. There's nobody to answer the rescue mission. The rescue mission, the scroll, the thing rolled up and sealed up. It's, nobody is worthy to open it. I love how scholar N.T. Wright frames this dilemma. God has... Determined to run the world through humans. Now that's Genesis 1 and 2. We've talked about this in our sermon series. And to rescue the world through Israel. That's Genesis 3 with the promise of I will create a seed that will crush the serpent's head. And chapter 12 of Genesis when he calls Abram and says your family is going to be blessed to be a blessing. And so what happens is you have this dilemma. God has determined to run the world through humans. To rescue the world through Israel. Both have let him down. And he goes on, what will he do now? Does anybody deserve to open the scroll? We might well join John in floods of tears at this point. Can nothing be done? But already, the plan to wipe away all tears from all eyes has begun. Don't cry, says one of the elders. Look, he says, here is the one who can do it. And Wright continues, and before we even... Look, we know who this is. It is the truly human. You know, who fulfills Adam's original calling. It is the true Israelite who fulfills Israel's mission. As a true Israelite to bless the world. It is the Messiah. Now, notice what happens when John looks at this worthy one. The only one who can open God's rescue plan. Notice what happens. He is described as a victorious lion who can alone accomplish God's mission. One of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping and look at the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir of David's throne. 
has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll of its seven seals. And then what does he see when he actually looks? He sees a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. Friends, the victorious lion is a slaughtered lamb. The way of God wins by losing. Sacrificial love is the victory of God. The cross of Jesus is the victory of God over sin, over Satan, over death. The hero is a lion who looks like a slaughtered lamb. And if chapter 5 introduces us to this victor, the rest of the book actually, chapter 6 through 20, gives us an image of how that victory unfolds. I have to simplify chapter 6 through 20 for time's sake. But the big picture is this. Evil looks like it's going to win, but the slaughtered lamb wins in the end. And he wins by dying. Y'all can leave now. That's it. (laughs) He wins in the end. And this drama plays out with symbolism and, as I said, hard-to-unsee imagery three times over. But it's the same battle and the same victory over and over and over again. So years ago, uh, the year my dad actually uh, got cancer, we decided to go to Wrigley in Chicago and watch not one but two Cubs games uh, that weekend. It was a rich time. And what was great about it is we got two different seats. So the first game we sat above home plate. And then the second game, we watched along the third baseline. And that's how this section of Revelation works. It's the same game in three different seats. The first seat, we watch all seven seals get broken one by one. That's chapter 6 through 7. The second seat, we witness seven warning trumpets get blown. That's chapters 8 through 11. The third seat, we, wit- we witness... Seven bowls get poured out. That's chapters 12 through 18. It's the same game. It's the same victory from different angles. And it's in this sort of epic that we meet evil as an unholy trinity, a sort of, as scholars have called it, a parody trinity. Instead of the father, we have a dragon. Instead of the son, we have a sea beast. Remember Daniel? Anybody with us with Daniel? John's, in a way, this is a furnished biblical imagination, and he understands the beasts and Daniel represent empires of his day. So the sea beast, and then we have instead of the Holy Spirit, a land beast, okay? So the dragon is Satan, the accuser. The sea beast is the Roman Empire and every power-hungry empire after it. And the land beast is those who sort of enforce and uphold that sort of um, empire vibe, we'll say. In those days, they were normal men and women who upheld and sort of enfleshed the Roman Empire worship of power and of domination. The way of the dragon, not the way of the lamb. And well, time and time and time again, right? Same story, three angles. It looks like they win. It's like unleashing more and more momentum. It's like that moment in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Aslan is murdered. And you're just like, what on earth happened? And how could that happen? It's all over. But in the end, the beasts are defeated, chapter 19. And the dragon too. And by the very end, death and the grave itself are thrown to the lake of fire also. 
That's chapter 20, verse 15. And so we see in just vivid imagery, basically, the gospel being played out. Which takes us to the sixth image that the Lord wants us to see, which is His people, the bride. We witness in chapters 19 through 20 the wedding of all weddings, the marriage of, that all marriages are meant to advertise. And this marriage is a marriage of Jesus to His church. And then when we see where the story of God has always been heading, chapters 21 to 22, new creation, which tells us that God doesn't scrap this world that He loves and made, but instead He restores it. And what He does is He brings a marriage to bear. So He brings this marriage of heaven and earth, just like we saw the marriage of God, of Jesus and His people. And when this happens... It's, you know, if the Holy of Holies is a perfect cube of God's presence, we are described here, this new creation is described in the same way, a perfect cube, actually, of God's presence. The Lord renews, wipes away every tear. Everything broken is restored. That is why revelation is a revelation. We need to see these images in order to stay in the game. It's a letter, it's a sermon. And it's a revelation. And that answers the what question, but now we have to answer the why question. And we'll be brief. Here's the short answer. Why is revelation in your Bible? Because God wants you. He doesn't want you to fade away. He doesn't want you to leave His fold. Let's say your child is struggling to stick with an instrument. Let's say piano. Uh, There's a couple ways to keep them playing the piano. Sheer force, okay? Just, you have to. You have to, you have to, you have to. This will burn them out eventually, and they will have a story where, yeah, I faded out of piano when I was in whatever grade, and now I don't know how to play. And now I regret it. You know, like me. And so that's just basically like everybody's story. We started with pianos and burned out. You could also do a second approach, which is give them logic. And you could basically argue them into loving the piano. That doesn't really work either. Or you could cast vision. You can help them imagine a future playing the piano with some friends. Or maybe on a quiet night after work. Or maybe leading worship at a church. You could take them to a concert and you could flood their imagination. But one of these, only one of these will work in the long run. And that's revelation to Christians. But not wanting to quit piano, but instead tempted to quit the Lord Jesus. These were folks who were very, very close to quitting the Lord Jesus. And God says, i got to cast vision. I'm going to give you something that will help you stay in me. You know, it's been mentioned by scholars in the right, there's really nothing new in Revelation, theologically speaking. You can get all the theology from the letters of the New Testament that that Revelation has. So in a way, it's kind of like color in our world. It's not really purposeful. But it is. It is. God furnishes our imaginations with truth. Because He wants you to stay here. This week I was sitting down with an old friend and I complained to him that I have to preach Revelation in one sermon. How on earth can I do that? And he looked at me funny and he said, that's easy, Joe. Are you you kidding me? That's easy. 
Jesus wins by dying and don't sell out to the empire. <laughs> and he's right. It actually is that simple. God wants to give you, though, a piñata of images that says that in different ways. So that one of these images sticks. And God knows, again, that we need more than just ideas to feed the mind. We're not brains on a stick. If we're going to patiently endure the hardships of life, we need what Revelation shows us. If we want our faith to be sustainable, we need what Revelation shows us. These early believers were afraid. They were giving up. They were finding the way of Jesus too hard, too difficult. When I'm afraid, I'm tempted to also give up and to claim the false saviors. But Revelation shows me a savior who is strong enough to save me, but good enough to lay his arm on me. A lion who wins, but as a lamb. And so let me just ask you this morning two questions. What is for you your driving force in life? Revelation is the kind of book that gets to these deep questions. What is your driving force in your life? Well, if your trust is in Jesus, if your trust is in the Lamb, then Revelation shows you your purpose. Follow the Lamb wherever He goes. In other words, you are not just saved from by the Lamb, but you are actually saved for by the Lamb. You are saved for Mission. You are saved to be a kingdom of priests, to reflect God to the watching world. And the way you do this is not just by following where the Lamb goes, but you actually follow how the Lamb goes. You are freed up by this Lion who won by being a slaughtered Lamb. You learn to live a life of victory through spending yourself in sacrificial life. So let me just ask you, does your leadership in whatever sphere you're in, unofficial, official, it doesn't matter, does your leadership look more like a lamb or a dragon? Does the way that you lead, does it look like the way of Caesar? Dominance. Power games. Hiding failure. Silencing failures? Or does it look like the lamb who wins by laying it all down? Which brings me to my second question. Who is your hero? Who is your hero? I think Revelation forces us to answer this question. Who is your rescuer? Who are you waiting on? Who are you pleading in life? Come. Or to what are you pleading? Come. You look at the very, very last bit of the Bible. Come, Lord Jesus, is the cry. I'm just asking you, what are you waiting on? What are you waiting for? What is your hero? What is your scheme of rescue that you are relying upon? Is it a political leader? Is it a romance? Is it a job promotion? Well, Revelation shows you what is at stake and if, it is, if it is not the Lord Jesus. And that is a grace. And it also shows you, if your trust is in Lord Jesus, what is in store? Revelation shows you a better and more beautiful way and a better and more beautiful Savior. 
And as we say every single Sunday, what we need more than anything else is to be captured by His beauty. And that's what Revelation does. Revelation shows us the beauty of King Jesus. Revelation shows us a bold lion who does not use his hand to slay you, but who is slain himself by our sin and by the best that Satan can throw at him. And instead places his scarred hand on your shoulder and says, do not be afraid. So Lord, we are not afraid. We rest under your arm, your scarred hand. We feel its pressure on our shoulder, even. We look at your grandeur and all the idols of our age, all the people, circumstances, or things that we are tempted to worship fade away at your holiness and grandeur. And yet, when we feel the pressure of your kind, gentle, scarred hand on our shoulder, and we hear you say to us, do not be afraid, we gladly repent of our idolatry, and we gladly lay our lives at your feet, and we gladly give our lives for your mission. You alone are worth it. Nothing else is. Thanks for listening in. For more resources like this and to learn more about Hope, please visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.